Hello and welcome to The Well. This is Dylan Bowman here. And as always, we are super glad to have you along for what is another really fun episode. Today, we're talking to Rachel Drake. Rachel is a great runner from here in Portland, Oregon, who is just coming off a hugely, hugely impressive second place finish at the Golden Trail World Championship, where she faced off against some of the best racers from Europe and around the world. And in a year with very little competition, uh, it was really fun to follow along. And she made us here in the US and especially us here in Portland, super, super proud. So it was great to talk about that achievement with her. And in addition to her career as an athlete, Rachel is also an MD, PhD student at OHSU, the Oregon Health and Science University here in Portland, where she studies neonatal metabolism and uh, currently working on her dissertation, getting ready to defend in just a few months. So Rachel is both an athletic and an, uh, an intellectual powerhouse. And it's my opinion that uh, Rachel and her husband, Tyler Green, who is another previous guest of the podcast, are two of the most underrated runners on the scene currently. So it was great to have her on the show and uh, get to tell her story in a little bit more detail. So in this conversation, we talk about Rachel's background and her academic pursuits before shifting gears and talking about some of her racing successes, including her recent achievement at the Golden Trail Championship. That was so, so impressive. So thank you all for tuning in. I hope you guys enjoy this episode. Please welcome Rachel Drake. Rachel Drake, it's nice to see you. Welcome to the podcast. How Good are you? Good to see you too. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's a it's a true pleasure and an honor. Um, we're here in Portland. You're, this is the first in-person interview I've done in a couple of months since I sat down with your awesome husband, Tyler Green, uh, an episode that a lot of people really enjoyed. Um, but here we are and we get to share your story a little bit too. So I think the best place to start is with some background. Tell us about who you are, where you're from, uh, what your interests are, both inside and outside of running. Ooh, that's a that's a lot. So I'm I'm from White Bear Lake, Minnesota. Um, grew up there, sailing and snowboarding. Um, my brother and I, yeah, did those activities together and didn't really run much until my junior year of high school. Started running cross country um, and track, and then ended up running at the University of Minnesota, and ended up out in Portland for school. Um, yeah, that's the the cliff notes. Yeah. Well, I think it's a very abbreviated. I think there's a, a lot that we could uh, go into there. So you said you came out to Portland uh, where you live now as part of your education. Let's go into that a little bit because I know this is something that's really important, something that sort of uh, takes up a lot of your time, especially right now. So tell yeah. us what you do professionally, what your focus is and, and sort of how that shapes you. Yeah, so at the University of Minnesota, I studied biochemistry and really just fell in love with science and did a couple research projects um, at the Uni University of Oregon and the University of Washington. So was exposed to the Pacific Northwest through those experiences. Um, and then, yeah, decided to pursue an MD-PhD dual degree and have been in Portland since 2014. So six years. And um, yeah, so the way that works is it's two years of medical school. So you do all the classroom didactic training and then uh, PhD. So I've been in the PhD portion for five years now. And I'm, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a long time, but it's I'm... What a commitment. That's amazing. Yeah. Well, you, you can't see it as, as being in school. I'm really just trying to see it as my job is to learn mm -hmm. um, because I'm you know, if you, if you zoom out, it's like, wait, you're not going to have a real job until you're 40 years old. Right. But I'm just telling people that I'm a professional student. Professional learner. Yes, exactly. So if you look at it that way, it's actually quite fun. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so for my PhD, I'm studying fat metabolism in the heart. So, um, 
really interested in how the heart transitions from carbohydrates, so glucose and lactate metabolism in utero to fat metabolism after they're born um, and how babies that are, uh, are growth restricted or born small, how their metabolism is stunted and whether there's anything we can do to improve their nutrition um, and hopefully get them on a better track because fun fact, well, it's not super fun, but um, babies that are born small are more likely to have heart disease when they're adults. So I think there's a lot that can be done um, in the immediate postnatal period to try to improve that, that outcome. That's so amazing, you know, <laughs> that you get to kind of devote your life towards these huge, like, hum human problems. And in preparation for our conversation, I went to your guys' website, you know, the Ultra Side Hustle. <laughs> oh. and, and I watched the video of the, um, I, I don't know if he's your instructor oh, or the head mentor. of the, your mentor. Um, yeah. It's about this subject matter of nutrition and, and epigenetics. Do you want to talk about that a little sure. bit more? Because I think that is really fascinating and something that I abs I had no idea about, about how the size of the infant can sometimes impact the long-term health and about how you know, nutrition and metabolism is sort of also genetic and, and the nutrition of our mothers and grandmothers might Absolutely. impact that. Talk about that a bit. Yeah, yeah, I love that you watched that video. That's amazing. Yeah. Um, everyone should watch that. So there's this whole field of research called the developmental origins of disease. So it's basically how your uh, development in utero programs you for your health as an adult. So what your mom ate, what your grandma ate, um, will impact the way that your body interacts with the world. So like, uh, for example, the, the egg that made you was made in your mother when your mother was in your grandmother's womb. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Let that set in. <laughs> Wow. Yeah. So there's a lot, there's a lot of research that's been done. Um, David Barker is one of the founding fathers of that, mm -hmm. that field. And you can look him up as well. And, um, it really started with more, uh, epidemiological studies, just noting observations of, um, infants that were born small or born too early, having these predispositions to, disease in adulthood. Mm. And now there's um, more of a push for looking at the mechanism behind that. So basic science research to try and explain that. And I think that's what you were getting at with mm -hmm. the epigenetics. Mm -hmm. So epigenetics are basically anything that impacts the way that your genes are turned on or off, but it doesn't actually change, change your DNA. It's a, a modification mm -hmm. to it. So um, one example of that would be if, if your mother doesn't have enough protein in her diet, the genes that metabolize protein in you would get silenced, we say. Mm. So then when you're born, you're more likely to not metabolize protein because when you were developing, your body thought, well, I'm not going to be seeing any protein when mm -hmm. I'm born, so I don't need these genes. Um, so there's a lot of work being done in that in that field as well. Fascinating. Well, it's so over my head, you know, so not on your intellectual level, but it's really, I think, interesting part of your story. And I think something that we see in running often is people who are very like science oriented find a similar fascination with running and the science behind running. Mm -hmm. do, you, do you find that in yourself? Do you think about things scientifically with your training? Have you always been kind of scientifically oriented? I leave all of that to Tyler. I think my <laughs> brain power is just so consumed by what I'm doing in the lab that I, I don't want to think about um, my training, I guess mm -hmm. the physiology behind that. But I do think about it when it comes to nutrition. Um, it's pretty fascinating to think about the way that your your metabolism is impacted by training or by a really long endurance event. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about endurance events and running. Okay. So you didn't really get into running until later in your high school years. Uh, how did uh, how did that come into your life, and uh, how did that sort of develop into where you are now as a world class trail trail runner? That's a bold statement, but thank you. That's really nice. Um, yeah, so as I mentioned, I did sailing and snowboarding growing up. 
And I think a large part of that was my brother is really into those. And I always wanted to do what he was doing. And then when I was in high school, I was actually on the tennis team and we would run a mile time trial (laughs) for that. And I think I was the only one who took that seriously. Um, And the cross country coach, who was also my middle school PE teacher, saw me running and said, hey, you should come out for the cross country team. So I ended up doing that and having some success with it. But I think, you know, high school and college, it's it's very regimented. Um, and you probably experienced that with your athletic career as well. Yeah. Just that, you know, go to practice, work hard, sleep, take your iron pills, <laughs> yeah. do everything right. And I think that that kind of crushed my spirit a little bit, really? just that mm-hmm. um, that level of seriousness, mm-hmm. which has been alleviated by trail running because yeah. I feel like trail running is more play than anything. That's great. So were you more, did you apply the seriousness towards your academics more so to your than your athletics as a kid? That's a good question. No, I, I took the athletics seriously, but it didn't feel sure. right in my really? heart. It huh. was... I felt like I had to do it, um, but I never really saw running as play mm-hmm. until my adult running. So when was it that this playful introduction to trail running happened? When when did that become more of a, a commitment competitively for you? Since Since moving to Portland, I would say, I got connected with a really awesome group of women that I think is primarily more road running oriented, but we, we all ran trails together and it was just really fun, um, very fit group of women that worked hard, but also more importantly, like to play. And, you know, it was about getting coffee and pastries after (laughs) and not about nailing the workout, even though we, we do work hard, but I think it was just that, that having that community. So, so important. So do you find, you know, going back to your, really in-depth uh, professional life that is probably takes a lot of work. I mean, are you coming to a conclusion with your PhD now? I'm sure, I mean, it seems just from, I'm inferring this from your social media, but it seems like it's taking up a lot of your time right now. Yeah. And how does the running part of your life uh, interact with your, your professional life? Yeah, I think on my social media, I keep I'm very, I'm just genuinely optimistic, maybe too much, but yeah. all right, I'm coming to the end. I'm coming to the end. <laughs> but I think now I'm really coming to the end, um, hoping to defend in maybe five months or so, mm-hmm. um, working on writing right now, which is good. And sorry, what was your question? Well, just how, how do they balance each other? Yeah. yeah. Oh, okay. That's good. Um, I think my, my schooling really helps my running actually, because... Mm-hmm. I think if I was left to my own devices and allowed to do whatever I want with running, I would probably get hurt pretty Mm -hmm. quickly. Mm -hmm. But um, having something else that's taking a lot of my time and attention really forces me to stop and not even think of myself as a runner for Mm -hmm. parts of the day. So um, they're two very different things, but I think they balance out really nicely. Mm And during the PhD, it was nice as well because I could go into lab, get an experiment going, go do a workout. Maybe it's not perfect because I only have an hour until it's done, the experiment's done, but it was just a nice balance to um, also have running to give me resilience with my research because anyone that's done research knows there's a tremendous amount of failure and it's nice to be able to you know, hang your hat on that. Okay. Well, at least I got that run in today. (laughs) Everything else failed, but I, I got a run in. I feel good about that. Yeah. Well, and similarly with running, there's always a lot of failure too. Yeah, that's true. in the case that you have a bad race or whatever, you can always hang your hat on. Well, I have this other amazing pursuit that I actually really care about as well. I think Mm -hmm. it's a really, um, important thing for people to consider. And I think a lot of the best athletes in the sport do have that balance. You know, the first person I think about is Francois Dane, who's got his vineyard and mm-hmm. in France, that's like a family business and that, you know, he puts a lot of care and attention into, and he's still, you know, the best in the world, arguably. So mm-hmm. I love that about trail running. There's so many examples of that mm-hmm. and it's, it's inspiring to see that and think, okay, 
you know, if he can do it, if she can do it, I can do that too. Mm-hmm. You can still compete at a high level and, and have other things. And there's going so many on. people like you too who have like very serious, like, <laughs> uh, you know, intellectual, uh, you know, bona fides and, uh, yeah, find, you know, find their way into the sport as well. I think it's a, a really cool theme that we see throughout trail running. So let's talk about last year for you, because I think it was a pretty awesome year. Um, you started at the uh, formidable 50k, which I think was the 50k USATF championship last year. Mm-hmm. Before you went over to Europe and you did the Trail de Ventoux race yeah, in I France. love that you know that. Dude, That's see, so funny. You're really I, keeping an eye I, on it. I keep an eye on these things. And, um, you know, most of the people who will listen to this probably don't know what that race is. But, of course, I do. It's sort of like the way too cool equivalent in Europe. Early season, a roughly 50-kilometer race. Um, it's a super competitive early season sort of test piece for a lot of the European professionals and you won the freaking race, which was your probably biggest result at the time on a big international stage. Talk about that race. How did you end up in Europe last spring doing that? Yeah. Um, so there was a, a conference actually in Paris and it was called the, the society for reproductive investigation. Um, so I went over there and actually got to give an oral presentation, which was such a dream. Um, I really love giving giving presentations, and to be able to give one at an international conference was really amazing. Um, so, of course, as anyone would do, I Googled trail races in France around that time, <laughs> yeah. and I found that race and really didn't know all these things that mm-hmm. you're saying. I didn't know it was going to be a big race until... I got there. Mm-hmm. Um, one of my old housemates drove down from the Netherlands, and we we drove we road tripped from Paris down to Bed- Bedouin for the race. And yeah, it's funny. I didn't um, I didn't really have a plan going into it. I just thought, well, this is going to be this grand adventure. Uh, I'll get a long run in, and it'll be all marked out for me. And yeah. didn't realize it was going to be as big as it as it was. Yeah. It's a huge result. And, you know, for the folks who, like me, are also Tour de France buffs, the Ventoux is like a iconic, iconic <laughs> road cycling mountain. And uh, it sounds like, do you guys go actually like tag the summit in mm-hmm. the race too? Yeah. Cool. Yeah. And it was really snowy uh, mm-hmm. up there as well. So that was, that was a surprise. Mm-hmm. Um, the way that the race played out too, I didn't have a crew or anything there. I just carried everything. Uh, didn't stop at any of the aid stations. And I thought I was in second or third place. And then mm-hmm. at some point, somebody said I was in first. So I must have skipped over someone at mm-hmm. an aid station. And then maybe with two miles to go in the race, um, Blondine caught up with me. And yeah. she's she said, hey, do you want to finish together? <laughs> and I said, um, well, I'm, I'm going to just keep running my pace. But if you want to run together, yes. Um, and I ended up finishing just 30 seconds ahead yeah. of her. Um, she's an amazing competitor, yeah. but you know, I, I didn't want to, I didn't want to do a hand holding yeah. crossing the finish line, you know? Yeah. Well, kudos to you. I mean, I, uh, I think there's just time and a place for that, but as a competitor myself and a sports fan, it's like, that's what you want to see. Yeah. You want to see like the best actually like compete to the end, you know, mm-hmm. and have that like dramatic conclusion, which we so rarely have in yeah. our sport. But yeah, I mean, obviously sometimes it is nice. It does provide a cool story, but was this sort of like a, was it a surprise for you? I mean, going into the race, obviously you had this other priority of giving this important presentation, you know, maybe, is it your first time competing internationally? And, um, did you expect to perform as well as you did on that kind of an international stage? Yeah. So I've done, I studied abroad in Spain in 2011 and Mm. did a couple road 5ks there, which was so fun. I, one of the races, I won a big, a ham, which was just <laughs> classic hilarious, Euros, yeah. classic. Um, and then the next year I ran the, the Mont Blanc 10 K mm-hmm. and I won that as well. And then the Cortina sky race, I think the year after that. Yeah. So I'd done a oh, couple, okay. yeah. but they were all purely because I'm, I'm just there mm-hmm. kind of similar to Ventoux where I, I just wanted to experience the culture in that way. 
Um, so I'd, I'd run internationally, but I think the, the, I guess success as you would call it is more just due to that lighthearted, mm-hmm. I'm just happy to be here and, you know, experience this. There's no pressure. No one knows me here. Yeah. Um, I think that that was a really big, uh, a really big factor in being able yeah. to do that. Yeah. What a great, great lesson. I think, you know, we all identify with that to a certain degree or can point to a result where, yeah, it's like just being happy to be there contributed mm-hmm. to outperforming your, yeah. your fitness. So, yeah. Well, let's talk about CCC a little bit too, because that was so fun. the last uh, sort of long, longer race that you've been able to do. Of course, we've all sort of been hamstrung with the uh, coronavirus in terms of being able to compete. And the American women last year at CCC did awesome. Mm-hmm. There was four American women in the top 10. You were seventh. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you feel about about that race? Um, looking back, I mean, that's obviously like one of the biggest stages in the sport. Did you feel like you competed to the level that you wanted to? Anything you learned from it? Yeah, I learned that I need to bulk up my quads, and I have done <laughs> so since. Um, you know, there's only so much quad pounding you can do in the Pacific Northwest. Mm-hmm. Wasn't prepared for those really long, grueling descents. So I... I think I blew my quads by La Foley, which Mm -hmm. is very early on in (laughs) the race. But again, I was just having so much fun. I really didn't want my day to be done. Mm -hmm. Um, So I just, you know, kept grinding and I was pleased with being able to to finish there. But, you know, obviously want to go back. And I think there's a lot of room for improvement Mm -hmm. um, over there. So in thinking about your future, and I guess we could talk about this later, but it makes me think like you just came off this awesome performance at the Azores. Is it the Azores? Is that how you say it? Azores? I don't know. I've heard Azores, Azores. We'll we'll go with Azores for this. Ignorant American people are going to sound like complete goofballs. But my, my question was more, you know, like, you crushed it there and we'll get to the specifics of it in a second. And you crushed it at the Vaughn two, you crushed it at CCC, but you know, it was a seventh place finish instead of like on the podium. And Mike, I guess it is just making me curious. Like, are you really motivated to do more longer races or do you find more of your motivation in the, in the sort of like sky running golden trail series type distances right now? So my, my triple ultimate lifetime goal is to do UTMB. So I think I really want to be good at the long races, but I think right now I'm just getting a lot of racing experience Mm -hmm. in the shorter ones and probably I'm a little bit better at the shorter ones, but, um, ultimately, yes, I'm motivated to get into the longer stuff. Sweet. Well, we can't wait to watch. American women absolutely crush at UTMB every mm-hmm. year, so uh, awesome. no, no pressure. <laughs> so let's move to the Azores, or the Azores, or the Azores, however you say it. Um, so this is the Golden Trail Championship. Um, so I guess I'll let you set the table. What, what was the Golden Trail Championship? Why was it like set up in this format, and how did you find yourself there? Yeah, so... Usually there are, I think, five races that compose the Golden Trail World Series, mostly over in Europe and then the Pikes Peak Marathon in the United States. And then based on that, you can earn a ticket to the World Championships, which is usually in some crazy far-flung-off land, really epic, you know, Solomon things. Um, And obviously none of that happened this year due to COVID. So I think they were looking for other ways to put on a, an event and they identified something like 80 races or fastest known time segments where people could earn a golden ticket. I think they called it to the world championships. So I think there were five in the United States, and one of them was the Enchantments Traverse up in Leavenworth, oh, Washington. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So um, Tyler was actually doing his wilderness first responder recertification there, mm-hmm. and he he encouraged me to go for it. Um, I wasn't I wasn't too sure if I wanted to, but then kind of at the last minute decided to. And Taylor Nowlin mm-hmm. um, held the the record on that. I think she had run it maybe two weeks prior. So I just texted her and told her I was going to go for it. And she was 
so encouraging and gave me all the beta. And I was really impressed um, just with how classy she was mm-hmm. in sharing all of that information with me. And yeah, I just went, went for it pretty hard, um, which was so fun. I kind of, you kind of forget how fun it is to just really lay it all out on the table. Um, so yeah, that's how that happened. And then there, there were a lot of doubts about whether the race was actually going to happen. Mm-hmm. So the, the training from there was really just, we'd call it simmer training where you're, you're still running, you're maybe doing some workouts, but you're not really differentiating into anything too specific. Mm. And then when it looked like the race was really going to happen, we did did some more focused training, and I think that that really went well. So cool. So by setting the fastest known time on the enchantments, that got you the invitation to go to the championship. Mm-hmm. So I guess let's talk a little bit about your training, which you just sort of alluded to, obviously with COVID, we haven't been able to race like Mm -hmm. at all, all year. Did you have an idea of like what your fitness level was going into it? And like, did you expect that you were in, uh, you know, the type of condition that you would want to be in order to contend for the win? Like you ultimately did, or were you going into it somewhat blind? I felt like I was going into it more blind. Um, I did quite a few fastest known time attempts with my friends, Jesse and Marianne, just mm-hmm. all throughout, um, the months leading up, mm-hmm. we did the McKenzie river trail and the Wilson river traverse and the Lewitt trail, you know, yeah, just right, yeah. hard days on classic routes. Um, and then leading up to the race, Tyler was having me do kind of one day, maybe a hard descent. So went out to the Elk Kings and did, you know, the hard three mile descent just to mm-hmm. get my quads really sore. And then the next day I, I had a big day in the lab. So I went out and did some hill repeats, just mm-hmm. really as hard as I could on tired legs. And then I think the third day we did the, the South Nasty. So it's a 12 mile, 2,500 feet of climbing um, route in, in the forest here in Portland. Um, so just doing those hard days back to back, I think helped both physiologically and mm-hmm. mentally to know what it feels like to run hard on tired legs and just have that attitude of, okay, I don't feel perfect, but I'm going to do what I can with what I have and be happy about that. And I think that was really helpful. Cool. I was going to ask this later, but we might as well talk about it now. You've alluded to the fact that your husband, Tyler, is your coach as well. Yeah. Um, how do you guys approach that um, as obviously a married couple as well? I know Tyler is a coach himself. Do you coach with Trails and Tarmac too? Yeah, I, I only have a couple athletes, mm-hmm. um, but yeah, so how do we navigate that? I mean, with, with your schooling, with your right. professional life, you know, balancing all that and then also having it also be not necessarily in conflict, but in, mm-hmm. uh, in synthesis with your life as a, as a married couple, is there right. ever any, um, sort of disagreement or does it work out really great for you guys? It's definitely been a, a learning curve for both of us. Um, he is, I, I see how dedicated he is to his athletes and mm-hmm. the books that he reads and just how much care he puts into what he does. And I think that really makes me trust mm-hmm. what he's telling me to do. Um, and then he also knows, he understands all my other life stressors and commitments. Mm -hmm. So it's been two years, over two years since he's been coaching me. And I think we're finally getting to the point where he knows what I need, Mm -hmm. um, knows what to say to me. And, uh, rather than saying, okay, here's your workout. He, he waits for me to say, what's my workout. Mm -hmm. And then he says, well, how much time do you have? (laughs) Because if, if he gives me this big workout, but I can't do it, then I, I feel guilty and like I'm not doing what I should. Um, but it's been, it's been really great. Um, I, I honestly can't think of anyone else who could, who could coach me, Mm -hmm. um, and who I would trust to coach me, but it hasn't been perfectly smooth sailing by any means. I think one thing that really helps is he's really receptive to feedback and, Mm -hmm. Um, I think a while ago I just said something like, can you just tell me that you'll love me regardless of how fast I run? So I, I know that that's true, but yeah. I think, you know, like you're alluding yeah. to, you really need to put the that as the first, the yeah. first priority. Yeah, and it, it probably helps like 
you know, you guys both seem to be fairly easygoing and not like completely tied to the ultimate result. And as you said, approaching it more as play uh, rather than it being like your complete identity as a, as a human being. So I was curious just about that that coaching dynamic and yeah. and how well it works. I mean, because it obviously works well. And, yeah. uh, and as you said, it's obvious like that Tyler really cares about you know, the athletes that he coaches and obviously cares about you as his wife as well. So let's talk about the Golden Trail Championship a little bit more back to that subject. Um, I think it's also important to kind of discuss the format, you know, for people who right. weren't following this as closely as, as probably Tyler and I were, but uh, you made us so proud and the format was unique. And um, I think something that I'd like to see replicated a little bit more. Um, talk Me about, too. well, I guess before we get to that, I, I'm also curious to learn, like when you got there with COVID and stuff, like mm -hmm. you guys arrive and get COVID tests and then how did things sort of play up to the, uh, the prologue? Yeah. So it was, it was quite a bit of, um, restrictions to even just get into the country. So we had to have proof of a negative COVID test, um, which we all had. I had screenshotted something from my electronic health record that just had my first name on it. So they, they caught that and put me in this line of, hey, we only see your first name. Can you verify this? So everything was very strict, which was good. And then once we got there, we needed to get tested again. Um, and then, yeah, the mask, the mask wearing was strictly enforced. And they said, you know, keep your mask on for 400 meters after we start, and then you can take it off and put it on when you finish. They took our temperatures before we went in the starting area. Um, yeah, I'm really impressed that they were able to put that on with all the restrictions in place. I think it would have been a lot easier to just say, sorry, we can't do it. Um, but yeah, they did a great job. Right. I mean, kudos to Solomon and the race organization because there weren't many opportunities for, to race and uh, there weren't many opportunities for fans of the sport to be able to see people race and follow along. And I thought they did a great job with the coverage. So, okay, now let's talk about the, the format. format. Yeah. Okay. So I didn't know. So in short, it was a four day stage race um, with 25 to 35 kilometers or something like that per day. Um, and then I didn't know this until we got there, but they did a prologue the day before the first day, <laughs> which was two miles um, just through the, the trails right by town. Um, everyone started, I think, one minute after one another and just compared times. And that was to determine your starting spot. So the guy that put it on said to think, think like Formula One car racing. Mm -hmm. um, so that was that was just kind of fun to to have that yeah. um, that prologue as they called it. So I mean, talk about the prologue because I didn't realize that that was the case too, and it was only like two miles or something. Yeah. yeah. Well, it said it was optional, so mm -hmm. I thought, well, okay, maybe I'll do it, maybe I won't. I don't I don't know why does it matter. And then I found out that it would it would determine what heat you were in because okay. there were um, heats of 50 people. Mm. Um, so naturally you don't wanna get stuck in a, in a slower heat and have to you know, kind of run by yourself. Um, so quickly learned I should probably do the prologue. And um, the other really cool thing about the event is that you, you met people throughout the week and just kept seeing them. So. Mm -hmm. Um, made a lot of new friends, which was really fun. And one of the things I love the most about trail running is just how amazing and wonderful the people are. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Yeah. I was going to ask about this too, like just the whole social aspect of the whole thing. And I want to go a little bit deeper into the actual like stages and mm -hmm. how you fared and yeah. what you thought you did well and what you could improve. But the social aspect I thought was also a pretty cool part of the whole opportunity to go over there because you guys are almost in the equivalent of like the NBA bubble for their, for their playoffs, but it's <laughs> like a, a bunch comparison. of pro trail runners. And, uh, what was that like? Because as you said, you raced for two and a half to three and a half hours a day, mm -hmm. it seems like, and the rest of the time 
getting what drug tested. Doing? Oh, really? Good. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's good. Yeah. And then uh, were you guys like able to socialize? Were you sharing meals? Were you kind of uh, making new friends? Talk about that a little bit. Yeah. I Well, I had these big aspirations of doing a lot of writing every day after the <laughs> racing. Right. Yeah. So... I didn't realize how exhausted I'd be after each day. So we, for the most part, after racing, um, you know, kind of just went back to the hotel and ate and slept and tried to get some work done. Um, I was rooming with Kimber Maddox, who lives down in Bend and is really amazing runner and person. Um, and she had work to do as well. So we, we tried to get work done and recover as best we could. But before the races, um, yeah, we shared some meals with other athletes. They had a rented out a, a restaurant and all the meals were covered for the athletes, which was really cool. Um, and just, yeah, we, we rode a bus to the, the start every morning. So you just see the same people mm -hmm. and, um, made a lot of new friends and just kind of checked in on how people were feeling, what kinds of wounds they had from the day before. We're all just, you know, getting <laughs> progressively more and more, um, scabs yeah. developing. So going to stage one, I'm curious, like, was this your first stage race type experience? And how do you approach that strategically? Is it just full gas from the gun or were people holding back trying to conserve energy for later in the week? I think a, a lot of people had different strategies. Mm -hmm. So um, some people, yeah, went full gas and really, I think, um, laid it all out there on the first day and then we're just trying to hold it together from then and others were taking it very easy on day one and maybe too easy so much that they had a lot more work cut out for them mm -hmm. I was trying to go for somewhere in between <laughs> where I'm my my mindset was I'm gonna try to run as fast as I can and not get hurt because it was very technical and muddy mm -hmm. and um I didn't want to twist an ankle or break a leg or something on yeah. day one and not be able to finish the other days. So I tried to be indifferent when people passed me and just thought, okay, well, I'm, I'm doing good for me and I'm just going to try to run, get, you know, cover this, this ground as quickly as I can and recover for tomorrow. Mm -hmm. And then every day I, I think I just got a little bit more, more risky. Mm. So you finished fourth in stage one. You mm -hmm. finished feeling like you had a little bit of gas left in the tank. Yeah. And I guess, yeah, talk about the recovery, like how you approach that. Obviously, you just mentioned that you go back to the hotel, you work on some of your dissertation writing. Mm -hmm. um, were, was there anything that you felt you did well to help you continue? Because it seemed like you just got stronger throughout yeah. the series. How was your recovery? How did you approach that? So usually I'm not very good at drinking water at home, but I was really good at staying hydrated over there, which was good because it was pretty humid. Um, you're taking a sip of water now. He's staying hydrated. Uh, I think that was one thing I did well. And then also I, I ate a lot, which me and my brother like to say, big dogs got to eat. Well, it's true. So I ate quite a bit. Um, they have really good canned tuna over there. Mm. So ate a lot of that. Just really anything I could get my hands on, I would try to eat. Yeah. And I think that helped a lot. And then um, good sleep as yeah. well. Just kick your legs up and mm -hmm. type away on the laptop. Exactly. <laughs> yep. I mean, honestly, like it goes back to what we were saying earlier in terms of like personal balance too, to be able to like shut the athlete part of your brain off mm -hmm. and start typing away on your dissertation. Yeah. yeah. Maybe that helps just to then when you wake up the next day and you have to do it all over again. It's not like you've been thinking about it for right. the last yeah. 16 hours. Or yeah. So I don't, you don't need to like go through every stage, right? Because, right. you know, that would probably be a little bit too much, but you know, you finish fourth in stage one, fourth in stage two, second in stage three, and then you won stage four, the final stage, which ultimately gave you second place in the overall series. Again, you don't need to go through each one of those, but like maybe talk a little bit about maybe some highlights, uh, things that you thought you did really well or things that you thought were particularly awesome about the mm -hmm. race, the event, and maybe a couple of lowlights too, things that you learned from. Yeah. So I think the first two days were both very similar in that I had that mindset of I'm going to try to run as fast as I can and basically stay safe. And then after day two, I was 
chatting with Tyler and he said, okay, I think it's time to start taking some more risks. So in my mind, I was like, okay, I'm going to be a little bit of a wild woman today. Um, and I, I was progressively more and more wild. I mean, these descents were pretty gnarly running through these really lumpy grass fields, um, you know, mud up to your knees almost. And, um, highlights. Okay. So the stage four, I, I felt like Maud or Mode. Do you know how to say Maud? Maud. Maud, Maud and I. Yeah, she's amazing. We were hammering together, like stride for stride, for quite a long time, mm-hmm. um, which was so fun. I almost felt like I was running with one of my friends back here. Just I didn't feel in any sense like mean or competitive. Mm-hmm. I just felt more synergistic and empowered and like we were trying to work together to pull away as much as we could. Um, and then on that last day, she distanced me on the climb. So pretty much every day it was one big climb, one big descent. Okay. So she distanced me a little bit on the climb. And then as we're going through the lumpy cow field, I heard someone say 15 seconds mm-hmm. and I looked up and she was right there. Mm-hmm. Um, and since I was now in my wild child state, I just sort of recklessly, you know, ran down the field and okay. ran past her. And she, she said something like, take it, which I was shocked. I, I'm pretty sure that's what she said. She might disagree, but <laughs> I, I thought that was really cool. It was just this kind of mutual respect of, Hey, I see you, you're crushing. We're both tired after three days of racing yeah. and, I knew I wasn't going to be able to put nine minutes on her 10 minutes that um, she had. So there was that, I think that kind of helped to make it more collaborative, um, which was just a really, really cool experience. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, Maude Mathis is an absolute savage and uh, she won the overall ranking. You were second. She won the uh, Pikes Peak Marathon and beat to, a bunch of men too, like I mean, pro she, men. And she beat Chrissy, or I'm sorry, uh, Nikki Kimball's. Um, I'm sorry, not Nikki Kimball. Uh, Megan Kimmel's course record. Megan Kimmel broke like a 30 year old course record the year before, and Maude, yeah, like just an absolute beast. And so you know the fact that you two were so. Um, yeah, so competitive with one another, but have that sort of like friendly competition and for her to kind of cheer you on at the end, that's that's so cool. Did you feel like you were getting stronger as the race went on? Looking yeah. back, did you feel like you maybe finished with a little bit too much gas in the tank or does it give you more confidence in your ability to like go those longer distances or in your resilience mm-hmm. over several days? Yeah. I think looking back, well, part of this too, is I don't, I don't get a ton of, uh, opportunities to race internationally. Mm-hmm. Um, just, you know, I, I think I have some more limitations with that. So I think I was playing it a little more conservative early mm-hmm. on because I, i in my mind, I would have rather finished in the top five and felt like I had more than, gone, you know, for first and hurt myself and not finished at all. Um, but yeah, retrospectively, I think maybe the first two days I could have given a little bit more. Um, one of the other things that I think really helped is Tyler was saying, you know, you really need to eat during the race, not just for that race, Mm -hmm. but for not depleting yourself too much for the next days. And I think that was something that, um, worked really well. It's great coaching. My, my coach always has drilled that into me too, like the, the hard training sessions and the long runs. Eating as much as you can, or n- not only for the simulation of what mm-hmm. you want to do on race day, but for the ability to recover afterwards. Yeah. Because if you finish completely depleted, you're yeah basically delaying your mm-hmm. recovery, which yep. was always like a light bulb thing for me too, because you do notice that in your training as well. You know, when you're in the thick of like the hardest weeks, Mm -hmm. if you make sure that you are on top of your nutrition during your workouts and long runs, yeah, you can start stacking those, those big weeks back to back to back and you recover so much better. Yeah. It's a, it's a great lesson for, for stage racing as well. And one of the other things I thought they did that was really cool is this sort of like tour de France 
style thing where for those people who don't follow the Tour de France, you've got uh, overall classification, so like the overall winner, but then you have like the best climber, and so the polka dot jersey in the Tour de France, the best sprinter, which is the green jersey, and in the Golden Trail series, they had the, the best downhiller as well. Were there people actually like going after those classifications oh, yeah. within the race? How did they have oh, that yeah. set up? Um, so they had big flags at the start and finish of each segment and, um, yeah, basically one of those mats that you run over and it clocks your time and people were really going for it, which mm-hmm. was so fun because, you know, you can check in with those people and say, Hey, Anders, did you get the downhill again? <laughs> and he's like, no, I lost it. Um, so it was, it was cool to have that within the, yeah. the overall race within the race. Um, so like looking, looking back at it, the, obviously that the result was awesome. I mean, you, you may feel like there was things that you could have improved, but does it, how does it make you think about your stature within the sport? Does it change the way that you see yourself in terms of, you know, in relationship to other competitors and your potential for the future? Does it make you think a little bit more about what you're your future goals are? Does it help you, you know, with your self-confidence? Any of those things? <laughs> I honestly, I don't think it really changes much. I don't feel like a different runner, like, like I can, I mean, maybe, maybe I'll have a little bit more confidence going into future races, but I think, I mean, the biggest thing I learned was just the, the power of having fun with it. Um, the races that I haven't done so well in have been the races where I, feel that pressure of, oh, I'm, people think I'm going to do really well and I think I'm supposed to, and it, uh-huh. it kind of takes the joy out of it. Um, but this was definitely more of an exercise. And I think, you know, we were all just so grateful to be there mm-hmm. because none of us had racing opportunities this year. So right. I think just that gratitude and enthusiasm and community just really, um, manifested itself in my, in my running, which Mm -hmm. was fun. But yeah, to answer your question, I don't, I don't think it really, uh, changes much in how I see myself as a runner. Um, just in that I want to keep doing more of it. Mm -hmm. And the, uh, I'm curious to learn a little bit more about the actual like terrain and, and the, the island, the archipelago (laughs) itself. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've heard people compare it to it the like it's Europe's Hawaii basically oh, the Azores. Okay. Um were you guys on a single island the whole time? And were you like in the same hotel the whole time? How mm-hmm. was it logistically? They had to sort of shuttle you around the island to different parts, uh depending on where the race was that day. Yep. Yeah. So we stayed on the same island the whole time. We were on day three actually supposed to go to a neighboring island Pico to do this, run up this huge volcano. I think mm-hmm. it was 8,000 feet of climbing. So significantly more than any of the other days. Um, and that volcano has some pretty variable weather on it. So they ended up having to, to cancel that and have us do something else on the, on the island that we were on of Fayal or Fayal. Mm-hmm. And on the fourth day, the winds were so high that they had to reroute the course. And so we're at the start line and they said, you probably, you probably saw this in your email, but we changed the course, check your email. And none of us had seen it because they sent the email like 30 minutes prior and we were already on the bus. So, um, I thought that was cool though. You know, we just had to roll with the punches. You couldn't be too, Mm -hmm. too tied to, to anything. You never knew what they were going to throw at you. Um, I've never been to Hawaii, so I don't know if it's if it's like Hawaii, but the terrain was variable. We were running through volcanic rock. Um, the videos that I saw of it made it look super runnable, mm-hmm. which there were runnable sections, but there was also a lot of bushwhacking mm-hmm. um, trails that I don't think existed before we were there that we were just kind of sliding our way through, um, which I thought was really fun. Like it, one of my, one of my Italian teammates said, it's not a race, it's an adventure. And I thought that was a really good way of putting it. 
Yeah, the, I mean, it looks like a, a beautiful place, and it did look like there was some somewhat abusive terrain <laughs> and that the weather conditions were a little bit difficult as well. Um, and, yeah, it's just looking at your Strava files, it definitely looks challenging, right? Because, like, if you do 20 miles in a day, you're doing, like, a 6,000-foot climb, mm-hmm. it looked like. And so putting all of those back to back to back, um, it's a, that's a tough week of racing. Yeah, but awesome. I think going back to, you know, having CCC under my belt, I think mm-hmm. really made me unafraid of the distance, mm-hmm. just thinking, okay, well, I've done all of this in one go before, so it's just going to be cut up over four days. Mm-hmm. So I think that that helped going into it as well. Awesome. So let's talk about kind of what's next for you. The, uh, the sport is obviously growing. The future is uncertain. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot to do. There's so many different opportunities. Yeah. And we don't know what the next 12 months holds in terms of whether we'll be able to travel and, and compete again. Um, does this inspire you to do maybe the Golden Trail Series next year if they hold it? Mm-hmm. Um, and what are some other goals that you have? Yeah, um, I would like to do the, the Golden Trail Series. I just think getting over to Europe for three races mm-hmm. in med school is going to be challenging. Yeah. Um, but I think Zegama could probably happen and then maybe either the Mont Blanc marathon or the Mont Blanc 90 K. Um, the Mont Blanc marathon is in the series, but I think I would almost rather do the 90 K, um, just get a little more, a little more running in. (laughs) And then I, yeah, I'd love to do one of the UTMB races. I was supposed to do TDS this year. Oh, were you? Yeah. (laughs) I would have been coming to you for advice on that. (laughs) Honestly, one of the greatest, one of the most cool races. I mean, it's basically harder than a hundred miler now. Uh Oh, well, it'll be good experience though. Yeah. Really, really good experience. Well, Rachel, it's super fun to sit down and chat. Um, Congratulations on what was an amazing performance. Thank you. And, uh, yeah, we were, uh, at least, you know, I was sitting here in Portland on, uh, on my Instagram waiting for the updates and uh, you performed really well and you made us all really proud here in Portland. So um, thanks for joining us. Congratulations on a great, great performance and uh, let's do it again soon. Sounds good. Thank you guys for tuning in. Thanks so much to Rachel for making the time to come over to my office and talk to me. It's always so nice to connect with people in person in this day and age after so many of these episodes conducted over Zoom. Uh, yeah, it was so, so nice to be able to sit down and chat with Rachel in person. If you aren't already, I would definitely encourage you to connect with Rachel. Let her know if you enjoyed the show. You can find links to her social media and her website here in the show notes. And I also linked to the TED Talk that we talked about at the beginning of our conversation, where her mentor discusses some of the things that Rachel is currently devoting her life to studying and some of the problems that she is devoting her life to fixing pretty awesome stuff. Hope you guys enjoyed. We'll talk to you again soon. Love you. Bye.